Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disgruntled Dan's Pharmacy Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number two of Disgruntled Dan's Pharmacy Podcast. My name is Dr. Dan Burton, and I'm a clinical pharmacist based out of Calgary, Alberta. For those of you that may not know, March is Pharmacist Awareness Month, or PAM. Yes, we do in fact have an entire month that is dedicated to pharmacists and pharmacies celebrating the work that they do within our communities. But PAM is not just about celebration. It is also about increasing awareness amongst patients and our colleagues on how pharmacists are an integral member of the healthcare team. As such, I wanted to take this episode to highlight some of the evidence around the impact that pharmacists are having in patient care and chronic disease management as kind of my way of spreading that awareness and wrapping up the final days of PAM. Now, the literature I'll be reviewing today is actually based on pharmacy practice right here in Alberta, Canada. In Alberta, we have one of the most advanced scopes of practice worldwide, which includes ordering laboratory tests, providing injections, and most importantly, the ability to independently prescribe medications. Now, I certainly am fully aware that as a pharmacist, and in particular an Albertan pharmacist, I am certainly a little biased to this topic, but... I promise to do my best to be objective and present the evidence in the most unbiased way possible. Today, I have three studies that I'd like to review with you. So the first study was done by Al Hammernay, ETL, called Pharmacist Intervention for Glycemic Control in the Community, or the RXing Trial. Now, the purpose of this study was to determine the effect of a community pharmacist prescribing intervention on the glycemic control of patients that had poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. This was a multi-center, pragmatic, before-and-after-design trial, which was conducted within community pharmacies throughout Alberta. So with a before-and-after-design, what happens is that there is no comparator group. And the author stated the reason that they did this kind of design was that they had concerns about withholding the insulin treatment with some of the high-risk patients that they were working with. So who were these patients? Well, they recruited adults that had been diagnosed by a physician with type 2 diabetes for at least the last six months. They were already prescribed one or more oral hypoglycemic agents, and they had a hemoglobin A1c of 7.5 to 11%, so obviously not optimally controlled. They excluded anybody that was unwilling to use insulin, had previously been on or currently using insulin, had a history of ketoacidosis, were pregnant, worked night shifts, had any significant renal impairment, were clinically unstable, or in any way could not adhere to the study procedures. And then once a patient was accepted into the study, the pharmacist would then prescribe Lantus at a 10 units just before bed, and they then asked that patient to titrate the dose one unit per day until they achieved a fasting blood, blood sugar of less than 5.5 millimole per liter. Now all the patients remained on their previous oral hypoglycemic agents unless the combination with insulin was not approved in Canada, at which point the oral hypoglycemic agent would then be discontinued. All insulin adjustments were made at the discretion of the pharmacist, and the patients were followed for a total of 26 weeks. So what were they looking for in this trial? Well, their primary outcome was A1C. They wanted to measure a change from baseline to the end of the trial at week 26. For secondary outcomes, they looked at the number of patients that were achieving a target A1C of less than 7, any changes in their oral medications, as well they also took into account some quality of life and patient satisfaction measures as well. So what did they find? Well, they had about 100 patients in total enrolled in the study, 
These patients, on average, had diabetes for about 10.2 years. Average A1C at baseline was 9.1%. Now, with respect to their primary outcome, they did, in fact, see a decrease in A1C from 9.1% to 7.3%. They also saw a decrease in fasting blood sugars from 11 to 6.9 millimoles over the 26-week period. And just over half the patients, in fact, it was 51%, had actually achieved an A1C of less than 7%. And that was at the end of 26 weeks. So if the study had gone on for a little bit longer, I'm sure we would have seen even more patients in this study actually achieving their target A1C. As for harm, there were 54 patients that reported what were called hypoglycemic-type symptoms. Two of them required medical attention. One went to their family physician, the other went to the ER but did not stay overnight. And it should be noted that the investigators weren't, were not actually able to confirm if these hypoglycemic-type events or symptoms were actually true hypoglycemia or not. So some of my final thoughts on this study. Well, to start, it was quite a nice read. There wasn't a lot of moving parts. It was simple, straightforward, and it was pretty easy to see how they came to the result. I'm also a big fan of this study as they initiated insulin sooner than later. So rather than stacking, you know, four oral hypoglycemic agents on, or even five in some situations I've seen, you know, insulin was added earlier on. And in reality, I think that's the way it should be done rather than insulin as this last resort kind of treatment. But I won't go dive too far into that and that disgruntledism that I have around that. We'll discuss that at a later date. So in general, I did not pick up any significant sources of bias in their methodology. As I said, it was relatively straightforward. However, in saying that, there was a few issues. And number one, there was no comparator group. You know, would we have seen similar results over a six-month period with patients receiving usual care? You know, if, that, if they were following up consistently with their family doc, the doc was taking their A1C, prescribing medications, etc. Maybe. So it's difficult to say if this pharmacist intervention is as good or better than usual care. Number two, they had a small sample size, a short follow-up, I mean only 26 weeks, and the population they used was, was relatively uncomplicated. I mean, yes, they did have diabetes and that makes them complex. But there wasn't a whole bunch of comorbidities and other components and moving parts that we had to worry about. As well, these patients were wonderfully adherent. They were coming in and seeing that pharmacist every two weeks. Now, it's things like this that make this a nice trial to read and a nice result that gets punched out. But is it really generalizable to actual real-life practice and constraints? And number three, they use surrogate markers. Now, there's nothing wrong with surrogate markers. They're still good. They present some good data. However, you know, surrogate markers like A1C, blood pressure, etc. are just a number. They don't mean a lot to the patient and they're not as clinically important. You know, I, when I read a study, I like to see a reduction in heart attack, reduction in stroke. What are the things that are important to my patient? Now, with the design of this trial and the short follow-up, it was difficult to try and tease that piece of it out. So A1C is still a good indication of, yes, we are getting diabetes under control, and yes, we could infer that having diabetes under control will ultimately reduce the risk of micro and macrovascular complications. And, you know, if this study was larger, had a longer follow-up, was designed, you know, in that sense to look for those more clinically important outcomes, we likely would have started to have seen them if we were controlling and managing their A1C. And for the conclusion of this study, what I think the main takeaways are is that pharmacists can systematically identify patients with poor glycemic control. They can then educate and support these patients in order to achieve better health outcomes with respect to their diabetes. Absolutely, that is possible. 
Now the second trial I want to look at is called the RX Reach trial by Suyuki E.T. All. And the purpose of this trial was to develop and implement a broad-based, community, pharmacist-initiated, vascular risk reduction case finding and intervention program in patients at a high risk of cardiovascular disease in order to evaluate its impact on cardiovascular events. So what were their methods? Well, they used a multi-center randomized controlled trial design. It was conducted in 56 community pharmacies in Alberta. Patients included in the study were greater than 18 years old, were at a high risk of cardiovascular events, and they all had at least one uncontrolled risk factor, such as uncontrolled blood pressure, LDL greater than 2, A1C greater than 7, or they were a current smoker. Patients were recruited and randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to the intervention or usual care group, and in the intervention group, they got a pretty special treatment. The pharmacist would follow up with them every three to four weeks for three months, and they received what was called a medication therapy management consultation. This include blood pressure readings, waist circumference, height and weight measurements. It also included a lab assessment looking at A1C, fasting cholesterol, GFR, ACR, etc. As well, each of the patients got an individualized assessment of their cardiovascular risk. For diabetics, they used the UK PDS risk engine. For uh, primary prevention and chronic disease, kidney disease patients, they used the Framingham risk score. And pharmacists would then also adapt and provide de novo prescriptions as necessary in order to meet lipid, blood pressure, glycemic control, or smoking cessation targets. Now, in the usual care group, they really did not get as much attention. In fact, they only received the usual pharmacist and physician care with really no specific interventions for that three-month period. But at the end of the three months, they were offered kind of this royal treatment in this medication th therapy management consultation. For the primary outcome, the authors looked at the difference in change in the estimated cardiovascular risk between the intervention and the usual care group at three months. So they did this by using the calculations from the risk engine tools. For secondary outcomes, they included a difference in change in the individual cardiovascular risk factors between the two groups, such as a change in systolic, diastolic blood pressure, their LDL, A1C, and whether they quit smoking or not. So what did they actually find? Well, they enrolled 723 patients. Their follow-up was complete. They lost 2.8% in the usual care and 5.1% in the intervention group. Both groups were relatively well-balanced in respect to their baseline characteristics. Now, there was more patients with uncontrolled A1C, uncontrolled blood pressure, and that were current smokers in the usual care group compared to the intervention group. And the intervention group had more patients that had uncontrolled LDL levels. Now, while I'm kind of splitting hairs here, and it was only a few percentage point differences, you know, it still may have a small effect, especially if these things all start compounding on each other. And if one group is more unbalanced compared to the other, then there's something that could potentially affect the final results. So it's just something to keep in mind. Now for the nitty gritty. In the primary outcome, the estimated change in cardiovascular risk over the three month period went from 26.6 to 25.9 in the usual care group. And the cardiovascular risk went from 25.6 to 20.5 in the intervention group. This gave the intervention group a 21% greater relative reduction in their estimated risk for CV events when compared to the usual care group. As for secondary outcomes, yeah, we saw improvements in all the different parameters they were looking at with respect to the intervention group, and there was actually no adverse events reported during this trial. Once again, it was a pretty nice study to read, generally well done, hit most of my bias checks. One of the bigger concerns was that the investigators were not blinded, 
and the authors do highlight this, and it's you know due to the nature of the intervention, pretty clear whether you're getting enhanced pharmacist care or not. Um, but it's something that we need to keep in mind as it can in introduce bias and definitely reduce our confidence in the results. Now, a few of my other concerns include, so number one, they use the Framingham and the UK PDS risk engines in order to show a change in the risk of cardiovascular events over time. Now, in reality, these engines were not really designed to demonstrate a change over time. They're supposed to look at one specific time point and give you punch out a cardiovascular risk for that point in time based on your different risk factors. So I can appreciate what the authors were trying to do. I mean, they looked at two patients at two different points in time and assessed their risk at each of those time points. One patient had a few things optimized along the way between the first and the second point and the other, not so much. Overall, they did show a difference. So it may not be the most robust evidence, but I think there's some really good takeaways from that. Now, my second issue, once again, pharmacists were managing surrogate markers. I've already ranted a little bit about this, but while there was a change with respect to the cardiovascular risk from what the risk engines had spit out, the study was not specifically designed to demonstrate that this pharmacist intervention did in fact reduce heart attacks, did in fact reduce strokes, etc., etc. The study was just not large enough and not long enough follow-up in order to see these events starting to come out. But once again, we can infer that if you manage cardiovascular risk factors and you lower a patient's overall risk, I mean, that's ultimately what we do in practice, we are likely going to see a reduction in cardiovascular events if we were to use a larger sample, a longer follow-up, etc. Overall, I think this study is pretty cool. Optimization of cardiovascular risk is a huge component of the pharmacist's role. And in just a three-month period, this study showed that pharmacists can provide a relative decrease in the estimated cardiovascular risk of a patient by 21%. So really not too shabby. They are making a difference. Okay, now we're on to my final and favorite trial. So this trial is called a randomized trial of the effect of pharmacists prescribing on improving blood pressure in the community the Alberta Clinical Trial in Optimizing Hypertension, or the RX Action Trial. So this study was a multi-centered, randomized controlled trial that had the purpose of testing the hypothesis that pharmacists prescribing for community-dwelling patients with uncontrolled hypertension would result in improved blood pressure reduction when compared to usual care. So again, Suyuki et al. completed a multi-centered trial where enhanced pharmacist care was defined as pharmacists completing an independent patient assessment. And now I want to highlight this, that yes, in some cases, pharmacists were making a diagnosis of hypertension based on the Canadian Hypertension Education Program, or the CHEP guidelines. So they had the patient coming in multiple times into the pharmacy or doing home blood pressure readings, whatever the case may be, but pharmacists were still making a diagnosis. And then, based... On that, pharmacists were counseling and prescribing based on their assessment or diagnosis. Kind of cool. The counseling that they provided included information about cardiovascular risk, blood pressure control, review of antihypertensive medications, and prescribing and titrating drug therapy if deemed necessary. Patients were also given a wallet card in order to record their blood pressure measurements, and they also got some lifestyle advice and a little bit of information on what hypertension is. Patients were then followed up at monthly intervals until their blood pressure was at target for two consecutive visits, and then they received a three-month follow-up interval thereafter. So kind of applicable to like real-life practice. 
The usual care group, all they got was a little wallet card for recording their blood pressure. They did get some lifestyle advice as required at the pharmacist's discretion. And also they received a little bit of written information on cardiovascular disease. And blood pressure measurements were completed by a pharmacist at three-month intervals. And when the patients required extra therapy or further therapy or whatever the case may be, they were then referred to the family physician if needed. So what was their primary outcome? Well, they wanted to see a difference in change of systolic blood pressure from baseline to six months between the two groups. Their secondary outcome was looking at a difference in diastolic blood pressure, the number of patients that reached their CHEP-recommended target blood pressure at six months, and they also looked at a few other things such as new medication starts, number of dose and drug changes, and as well the number of new prescriptions for ASA, cholesterol, etc. that were provided. Now the inclusion and exclusion criteria, relatively straightforward. In order to be eligible for the study, patients had to have uncontrolled hypertension as defined by the CHEP guidelines. An exclusion criteria included patients suffering with a hypertensive emergency, which was defined as systolic greater than 200 or a diastolic greater than 130. And they also excluded any females who happened to be pregnant. Patients were randomized in a two-to-one fashion via a centralized secure website that allowed for concealment to occur. But again, blinding did not occur. Again, the authors did note that this was due to the nature of the intervention. So what were their results? 248 patients in total were enrolled, 181 were randomized to enhanced care, and 67 to the usual care group. A total of 32 patients withdrew from this study, 26 in the intervention and 6 in the usual care group. Now follow-up was still complete, but the study did have a high dropout rate, which is a little bit concerning. Now the authors did kind of help with that by using an intention-to-treat principle for their final analysis, which means if a patient was lost, the last value that was known for this patient was then carried forward for their final analysis. So at baseline, the mean blood pressure was 150 over 84 millimeters of mercury, and 78% of patients were actually already on antihypertensive medications. For the primary outcome, they did see a decrease and a change in the systolic blood pressure in both groups over the six-month period. There was a greater reduction in the enhanced care group, but the mean difference in systolic blood pressure was 6.6 millimeters of mercury, which they did find was to be statistically significant. For secondary outcomes, diastolic blood pressure was also decreased in both groups, with an adjusted difference of 3.2 millimeters of mercury. 58% of patients in the enhanced care group reached their blood pressure target, and 37% in the usual care group. Now for secondary outcomes, diastolic blood pressure was decreased in both groups, and the adjusted difference between the two groups was 3.2 millimeters of mercury. Also for secondary outcome, 58% of patients in the enhanced care group reached their blood pressure target, compared to 37% in the usual care group, so definitely a difference there. And the enhanced care group also had a number of new medication starts, discontinuations, as well as a number of dose adjustments, changes, when compared to that usual care group. So a lot more action kind of happened in there. So that's my basic summary of the RX Action Trial. Now, once again, there were still some issues with this trial. It wasn't perfect, and I'll highlight a few here. So number one, patients and pharmacists were not blinded. As I already said above, definitely can add some bias around the response and the care that's provided in this trial. Number two, it was a small sample size and they had a large number of patients that were lost to follow-up. Kind of concerning when it's such a small group and then you lose a whole bunch of people on top of that. Really can affect your results. Number three, once again, surrogate marker was blood pressure was the primary outcome. 
and I'm sure you've heard enough about me ranting with respect to surrogate markers for today. So in conclusion, you know, a 6.6 millimeter mercury difference in systolic blood pressure does not even really seem that great, even though it was statistically significant. So let's break it down a little bit here. When we look at the mean systolic blood pressure reduction, we see that there was a reduction of 18.3 millimeters of mercury in the enhanced care group, and there was an 11.8 millimeter of mercury reduction in the usual care group. Both those numbers look pretty darn good. I mean, those are pretty significant reductions considering at baseline, the baseline blood pressure was 150 over 84. And the authors do highlight that the usual care group in the study did have a higher than expected blood pressure reduction when compared to previous research. And I would agree with this point. I mean, they did look like they did quite well. And with that in mind, the authors were still able to demonstrate a statistically significant difference in the enhanced care cohort. But what does this all mean? What does this data really tell us? Are pharmacists better at managing blood pressure compared to physicians? Well, no. What this study really demonstrates is that I believe pharmacists are better positioned as a more accessible healthcare provider and in conjunction with physicians can help patients more successfully manage their hypertension in that integrated integral team approach and really making that difference. And as a side note, there was a sub-study done of the RX Action trial. This was completed by Mara et al. And what they did is they completed an economic analysis of pharmacists handling the comprehensive management of hypertension, which included patient education and prescribing. And what they showed is that pharmacists could have a projected cost savings for the Canadian healthcare system of $15.7 billion if the full scope of pharmacist care were to be administered to the fully eligible population of Canada. Now that is a huge, huge cost savings, and that is only looking at hypertension alone. That's not even applying it for the vast number of other chronic diseases that pharmacists could have a role in. So once again, that's pretty freaking cool, but it certainly demonstrates the value of pharmacist care in the community and the potential for huge implication in the care that our patients are receiving. So to wrap things up, let's do a few of disgruntled Dan's conclusions. Number one, pharmacists in Alberta, Canada have one of the most advanced scopes of practice in the world. The three studies I presented here demonstrate that with this scope of practice, pharmacists can proactively and systematically identify and manage patients with uncontrolled diabetes, hypertension, and those that are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Number two, the ability to independently assess and prescribe allows pharmacists to help ease the burden of care on physicians and other healthcare providers, and not only strengthening interprofessional care, but has the potential to increase efficiencies and provide substantial cost savings within our already overburdened healthcare system. And number three, this is just the beginning. As one of the most accessible healthcare providers in Canada, there is a real opportunity for pharmacists to start building out their areas of expertise and continuing to build their areas of expertise to also develop new and innovative practices that can truly enhance patient care and our healthcare systems. I'm excited for the future. I hope to continue seeing the scope of practice here in Alberta being adopted and built upon in other jurisdictions worldwide and we can really show and build and create a better difference and better health outcomes for our patients. Well, that is all for now, folks. 
I know this podcast is a little bit longer than what I was expecting, but I really wanted to highlight some of the work that pharmacists are currently doing here in Alberta, Canada. And I mean, in reality, this is just a fraction of the work that's currently being done here, as well as across the country and worldwide as well. So happy Pharmacist Awareness Month to my colleagues. I hope you all had a great PAM. Keep up the great work, continue to push those boundaries, look for those innovative solutions, and really continue to enhance patient care. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, please feel free to reach out to me through my website, healthcareevolve.ca. And thank you for listening. Thank you.